This message was presented at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this conference and these short moments that we have together to just scratch the surface on this this infinitely, eternally important topic of educating and training our children. And we just pray for your spirit to be with us, that you would um, give us wisdom, understanding, and clarity. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Much of this session is a story. I'm going to tell you the story of education, where it has come from, where it has gone to, and where it's going to be in the very last days. And I want to begin in the Garden of Eden. Did you know that the system of education established in Eden centered in the, what does it say? The family. The family was the school and the parents were the teachers. I read education as a teacher. Uh, 11 years of a teaching career just ended this past year as I've gone into ministry full time. And I did not catch this concept the first time through when I read this as a teacher. Now I'm a parent. I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old, and I read education again in preparation for seminar and, and parenting. And I've understood this concept. Let's explore this further. The opening chapters of education very much bring out this theme. God's original Garden of Eden plan for education was the family. The parents were the, were the, were the, were the teachers. You might call it a home school, although I want to use that term carefully because it might put an image in your head of a child at a kitchen table doing worksheets, the exact same curriculum that is happening in the school. He's just at a kitchen chair instead of a desk. Well, God's plan for education is going to be a whole lot more radically divergent from what we think normally. Let's follow it through. In early ages, with the people who were under God's direction, life was simple. They lived close to the heart of nature. Their children shared in the labor of the parents. Isn't that interesting? And studied the beauties and mysteries of nature's treasure house. And in the quiet of field and wood, they pondered those mighty truths handed down as a sacred trust from generation to generation. Such training produced strong men. What kind of training was it? It was a home education setting where children entered into the labors of their parents. They spent that time together in nature. Reading on, we see in ordinary life, the family was both a school and a church. This, again, is in early ages. The parents were being the instructors in secular and religious lines. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 9. Have you ever noticed who this is directed toward? Everybody knows this scripture. You may have it memorized. It says, And thou shalt write them upon, write these commandments of, of God upon thy house and, on, uh, and upon thy gates, and thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand and as frontlets between thine eyes. And it shall be when the Lord shall have brought thee into the land which you, he swear unto to thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and so on. Did you notice how it started, though? The part I didn't read to you. It says, These words which I command to thee this day shall be in thy heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy what? Thy children. So who is this directed toward? The children's parents. God's method of education from the very beginning was parental in nature. In God's plan for Israel, every family had a home on the land with sufficient ground for tilling. Thus were provided both the means and the incentive for a useful, industrious, and self-supporting life. And no devising of men has ever improved on that plan. Every father was required to see that his sons learned some useful trade. This is God's plan, purpose, design, blueprint for education. The education centering in the family was that which prevailed in the days of the patriarchs in early times. 
For the schools, or you might call them home schools, thus established, God provided the conditions most favorable for the development of character. The men who held fast God's principles of life dwelt among the fields and hills. They were tillers of the soil and keepers of the flocks and herds. And in this free, independent life, with its opportunities for labor and study and meditation, they learned of God and taught their children of his works and ways. This was the method of education that God desired to establish in Israel. What's the next word? But. So something happened to move us away from this original plan. What was it? When brought out of Egypt, there were among the Israelites few prepared to be workers together with him in the training of their children. This is why in, in, in very many households, the training appointed by heaven and the characters thus developed in these children were alike rare. Fathers and mothers in Israel became indifferent to their obligation to God, indifferent to their obligation to their children. To meet this growing evil, God provided other agencies as an aid to parents in the work of education. Samuel, by the Lord's direction, established the schools of the prophets. This is the first time in history we see schools, and it was to meet the growing evil of what? What was the evil that was happening at the time? Parents were not doing their duty. They were not following God's plan and design for home-style education, homeschooling, if you will. In his wisdom, the Lord has decreed that the family shall be the greatest of all educational agencies. So this is a statement of present truth for us. This isn't just something back then. That's how they used to do it. But God has a better way for us now. No, it says that no human devising has ever improved upon that original plan, doesn't it? Now, we also read when we fast forward to Jesus' time, Jesus followed the divine plan of education. How was he educated? In the schools of his time, with their magnifying of things small and the belittling of things great, he did not seek those schools. His education was gained directly from the heaven-appointed sources, from useful work, from the study of the scriptures and the study of nature, and from the experiences of life, God's lesson books. If you will, Jesus was a homeschooled child. He did not go to the schools of his day with their belittling of things great and their magnifying of things small. He followed the divine plan that God established in Eden. Now, that might beg the question that I'm guessing and hoping and, and assuming everybody in the room is wondering. Then why did God give us in 1872 a education blueprint for schools. We as the Adventist people have a very strong foundation in school institutions throughout our history. Why? Well, same reason Israel received their schools of the prophets. It says here in Councils to Parents, Teachers, and Students that the necessity of establishing such schools is urged upon me very strongly because of the cruel neglect of many parents to properly educate their children in the home. These schools should be built upon the same principles as were the schools of the prophets. So we are modern Israel in a way, aren't we? God brought this in as a necessity to meet the growing evil, if you will, of parents not doing their heaven-appointed task. But as we read on, you find, by the way, if, if you ever came into the church, you heard this schools of the prophets thing. I came into the church six years ago. I'm going, what's the schools of the prophets? I've never read that or heard of that before. In 2 Kings 2, you read about the sons of the prophets and then the story of Elisha with the young men and they chop down the tree and the axe goes into the river, right? They're building their school. This is where we get the schools of the prophets concept from in the Bible. And they were called the what of the prophets? The sons. Interesting. So these students were like sons in sort of a familial situation where the prophet acted as father and the students as sons. Same thing with us. Our schools should be, what does it say? Family schools. 
where every student will receive special help from his teachers as the members of the family should receive help in the home. And you, you also find this statement that just really encapsulates so much of what we're going for when we think about our education blueprint. I left a blank in it to keep you in suspense. Our schools should be as blank as possible. Does anybody know what it is? Our schools should be as blank as possible. I don't think I heard it. Home-like, somebody said it. Our schools should be as home-like as possible. Because if the home failed, and God's going to bring in something to uh, supplement that, to augment the failing home, it's not going to be something totally different and divergent from a home. It's going to try and replicate what was supposed to be done in the home in a school situation like the schools of the prophets. Amazing. And this, by the way, is why our early schools, when they, were, when they were boarding situations, they would board the students in homes, in teachers' homes. Our school homes have been established that, as far as possible, a home atmosphere may be provided. Teachers who are placed in charge of these homes are to act as, take a guess, fathers and mothers, showing an interest in the students, one, one and all, such as parents show in their children. In the school home, students are daily surrounded by opportunities which, if improved, will greatly aid in the developing of what kind of traits? Social traits of character. You see, social development, socializing, developing social graces does not develop in the context of just your immediate peer group of students your own age in a classroom in desks or at banquets and proms and parties and football games like in American culture. We have this perception of social development that it has to happen within the context of traditional American schools. But what you're hearing here is, as students go to these schools of the prophets, the way they develop socially is by being in the school home. A home-like setting is best for social development as well as spiritual. Our teachers should not think that their work ends with giving instruction from books. Several hours each day should be devoted to working with the students in some line of manual training. In no case should this be neglected. Several hours. That's different than the way I viewed school as a teacher for 11 years, for sure. Several hours of manual labor with the students. But you notice it's with the students. That's the key because we're talking about family-style school here. In some schools, the teacher is always with his pupils in their hours of recreation. He unites in their pursuits, accompanies them in their excursions, and seems to make himself one with them. Well would it be if our schools, for our schools, were this practice more generally followed. The teacher always with his pupils. Young men and women need to become familiar with the duties of daily life. They should be taught to do their domestic duties thoroughly and well, and no more study should be taken than can be attended to without neglecting the household duties. Are you seeing a picture come together here of what these, home, these school homes were supposed to be like, these schools of the prophets, or if you will, home-like schools? You see social development happening, manual labor, spending lots and lots of time with the teachers who act as parents in this school situation. Because if the home failed, we want to replace it with a home-like situation. Many branches of study that consume the student's time are not essential to usefulness or happiness. But it is essential for every youth to have a thorough acquaintance with everyday duties. If need be, a young woman can dispense with a knowledge of French and algebra. A lot of people who don't like algebra get a, yeah, moment there. But nonetheless, this is in the council, it says, or even the piano. Interesting, piano came after algebra. It's like, they could dispense with French or algebra or even the piano. But it is indispensable, indispensable that she learn to make good bread, 
and to perform efficiently the many duties that pertain to homemaking. And if you're going, wait a minute, this sounds like oppressive women's stuff, listen to this. Boys as well as girls should gain a knowledge of household duties, and girls should learn to use the saw and the hammer as well as the rake and the hoe. Do you hear how practical this is? This is not just education as we've known it in America for 100 plus years. If you attended the first session, uh, you saw the message about, about American schooling and where we got these notions from. I can't repeat all that now, but you'll want to pick up our, our, our message called Schooled to learn more about that. Of all the features of an education to be given in our school homes, the religious exercises are the most important, referring to morning and evening services in the home. The teacher should carefully study, this is interesting, study the disposition and character of his pupils that he may adapt his teaching to their particular needs. I've been teaching in high schools for 11 years, and typically I have between 50 and 120 students that file through my classroom on a given day. And it's really hard to get to know scores of students at this level study their dispositions, really get to know them. This sort of mass schooling method that we have in America came to us from the Prussian model, which again, I can't repeat all the history there. You can listen to the message schooled to learn some of that. But um, nonetheless, we're supposed to really be able to get to know each and every child, just like a family. Let the older assist the younger, the strong, the weak. So you've got age integration here, multiple ages being able to be in combined, kind of like the traditional one-room schoolhouse, or how about a family? Schools should be established, not such elaborate schools as those at Battle Creek and College View, but more simple schools with more humble buildings and with teachers who will adopt the same plans that were followed in the schools of the prophets. So let me just sum up here. We've talked about these family schools, the schools of the prophets that we were to to create that were supposed to be as home-like as possible. Just bullet pointing these that we just went over. Few students per teacher. Teachers always with the students. Older and younger students working together. Learning social traits of character. Several hours per day of manual labor with the teacher. Morning and evening worship in the school homes. Learning household duties in the school homes. A home atmosphere. I think you're getting the teachers as fathers and mothers. You're getting the picture that this is to mimic the home, right? And this is, this is something I did not get as a teacher. I've only, as I've looked at this, at this through the eyes of a parent now, and I'm, I've, I've read through almost all of the Spirit of Prophecy councils on education. I'm about just a fraction from being done. And it comes through so beautifully and so clearly God's plan for education. Now, let's sum up with this, these images. You saw the image of Jesus with his mother Mary praying to the Lord, Garden of Eden. This is home education. This, Schools of the Prophets, is home-like education, if you will. These are the two options for Adventist families. This is a parenting seminar, not an education reform seminar to, to address the schools and the educational personnel. As parents, we have two options with, our, with regard to our children's education. As you read through Spirit of Prophecy, this and through, of course, the narrative of the scriptures, this being the preferred option, the first option, and this being a necessary uh, augment to, to the, the, the growing evil of parents who were not doing that one. The progress of Prussian schooling in America that I didn't get to in the first session of our meetings this week, between 1750 and 1850 in America, we were generally in this country an agrarian society, and children were generally homeschooled, or perhaps there would be a one-room schoolhouse, they'd be learning something from uncle, from grandpa, from the blacksmith across the road. It was, it was small town, rural type of living, and there were extraordinarily high rates of complex literacy, actually. If you ever read through the Federalist Papers, which, do you, you know what those are? 
are. They were the, the very complex arguments in favor of ratifying the US Constitution in 1787. The audience for the Federalist Papers was the average New York State farmer. Now, if you try to read those, they're really hard to digest, to digest and comprehend, but they were written for the average Joe out in the field. They would come home in the evenings and debate and discuss theology and politics. Very strong thinkers that founded this country, and they learned trades as well. Between 1852 and 1890, compulsory schooling laws were passed in America state by state, so that by the turn of the century, the whole country was requiring, by law, students to attend school. Now, these schools were not Prussianized yet, if you will. If you don't know what I mean by that. Again, I apologize. That was in the first session. But it was in the 1890s that our schools became after the order of the Prussian schools in Germany. And of course, those men being some of the founders of American education. But what I didn't tell you on, on Thursday was that, you know, we had 1844 Adventist movement founded, 1844 Horace Mann basically launching public education in America, 1872 the first councils on education being written from Ellen White, 1872 the U.S. government circular of information decrying all of this education that was happening and saying we need to dumb the population down. So we saw these parallel histories running together. Again, in the 1890s, that parallelism continues. While American schools were being uh, consolidated, Prussianized, controlled in this way, also, do you know who that man is? E.A. Sutherland was launching a revival in Battle Creek. And as a part of this revival, there was all these youth and young adults coming out on fire for the Lord. And they were saying, what do we do for mission work? We want to bring the final message. And you know what he, he, he commissioned them to do? Go and start church schools all throughout our country as missionary training agencies. And these church schools will be following the, 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 the schools of the prophet model. And so this, this passion, this burning passion began in the 1890s. But running parallel to that again, Prussian schooling style continued to progress in America. It was, it was very much Prussianized, if you will, during that period, 1890 to 1920. And then this period, 1920 to 1970, is where the system became big, it became nationalized, the high school districts became very large, and it became the system we have today, basically, in America. So that by the 1970s, in America, this is American history at least, God's plan was almost nearly wiped out. There was almost, I mean, almost nobody doing homeschooling anymore in America, even though it was the norm from 1750 to 1850 in America to have home education. By the 1970s, there were only a few thousand homeschoolers left, and almost nobody knew a homeschooling family. It was a deviant thing in the 1970s, an oddity. In fact, it was illegal in most states to homeschool your children. And everybody kind of assumed that education as we know it, schooling as we know it, is the way things go in society. And we didn't have the historical literacy to be able to look past 100 years before and see that this experiment with mass compulsory schooling in the country was a brand new thing in human history. And it's kind of a radical experiment if you think about it. But people kind of took it for granted like it's normal. And the greatest suffering has come upon the human family because parents have departed from the divine plan. You know, the 60s and 70s were the time that morals were starting to fall apart, where evolution was coming very strongly into the schools, prayer and Bible readings going out, and the society was beginning to become more and more secularized during that period that schooling was becoming consolidated in America. And then God raised up, I believe, Certainly there became the man, Dr. Raymond Moore, who I think, if you look at all the Adventist people who were, who were foundational in society and doing things in the broader society that, that mattered, that had an impact, that were really powerful, like 
John Henry Kellogg, right? The guy really did a lot that had a lot of influence. We don't like the direction he ultimately went, but he had a huge influence in his day. Probably the single most influential Seventh-day Adventist in terms of influencing the broader culture. Dr. Raymond Moore, I would put as second for that. I'm willing to be corrected if you come up with somebody else, but as far as I can read the history, Kellogg, then Dr. Raymond Moore. Why would I put Dr. Raymond Moore as the second most influential Seventh-day Adventist in the broader society? Because he founded the homeschooling movement of today, which is huge in evangelical Christianity. And, and I didn't even know about the guy until just a little while, you know, year or two ago. And, and it, yeah, it, it was a shocker to me to find out that he was an Adventist. I was, wow, Adventists are the ones behind that movement? I, I, that's a, as a historian and a sociologist trying to analyze events, that, that was really an amazing thing. We read in Joseph Murphy's, Murphy's Homeschooling in America that Moore became the most visible and the most celebrated homeschool leader in the nation. In the 1960s, he was a respected critic of public schooling, but then in the 70s, he really became a national name. He published in Harper's Magazine and in Reader's Digest a, a treatise in favor of delaying formal education. We talked a little bit about that in the fourth session on Thursday, and that sort of made him a national name. By 1979, he got the attention of James Dobson and Focus on the Family, and he did a number of interviews there that got huge attention to his message, and he was the guy, 1979, on Focus on the Family that really launched what we know today as the modern homeschooling movement. By the end of the 1970s, though, remember, there were less than 10,000 homeschoolers. Watch this. After Moore got on, uh, on, on um, Focus on the Family, just six years later, it went from less than 10,000 to 50,000 homeschoolers by 1985. By 1992, it went from being illegal in 30 states to illegal in zero states. And by 1995, there were 500,000 homeschoolers. Today, there's well over 2 million. And we can thank Dr. Raymond Moore for being the one that really was at leading the charge of that. And where did he get his ideas from, brothers and sisters? from Spirit of Prophecy. He read all those quotes I just shared with you about home education being God's original plan. Amazing, beautiful. And, and the, the studies are starting to come in. Really, the first generation of the mass homeschool movement is now graduating and going into adulthood. And even while the morals of society have crumbled, homeschoolers do more community service than school-educated youth, and they internalize the values and beliefs of their parents at a very high rate. And these are evangelicals, for the most part, who don't even get the blueprint. How much more powerful this, would this be if we were following the true blueprint that we've been given? Academically, they score better on standardized tests. Interestingly, regardless of their family's household income and regardless of the parent's level of formal education and whether homeschool parents were ever certified teachers or not has no bearing upon their academic achievement. So if you're insecure about this going, you know, I've kind of wanted to homeschool my children, but I'm not a teacher. I don't have a degree. I'm, you know, we don't have a lot of money. None of that matters in the, in, the, in the data, actually. It's the dedication. It's the willingness to find help. It's the willingness to do what needs to be done in order to do it. Homeschool students are increasingly being actively recruited by colleges, and they have more success in college. Now, these are academic things. We're interested in way more important things than that, eternal interests. This plays into that. But we want to ask ourselves some even more important questions. Why do our home schools or our home-like schools exist to begin with? What should they be like? They're certainly to be of an entirely different order, but how exactly? What is their purpose? Our schools are the Lord's special instrumentality to fit the children and youth for missionary work. The teachers should be faithful workers, or parents should be faithful workers. 
filled with the true missionary spirit, workers who have learned to put their trust in God and to labor in his name. You read that the the teachers are supposed to be consecrated missionaries. So if you as an individual go to God on this and say, Lord, I'm thinking about being a parent or I am a parent or I'm thinking about being a teacher. You know what? You need to be first a missionary. Because, you know, you read over and over and over again that the purpose of our schools and the purpose of our families is to raise up a generation of youth who are to be missionaries. And you know how you produce Laodicea? As you have lukewarm parents, lukewarm teachers who are not missionaries, setting an example for the youth that this is just kind of how you do average run-of-the-mill everyday Seventh-day Adventist living. And they get the picture, even if we preach it till we're blue in the face, that this thing isn't for real. But it is for real. And we can ask the Lord to reform us on that, can't we? Now, I asked, what is this educational blueprint like? By the way, I'm giving you the tiniest little slivers of this. These are just some very important insights that I want to bring. Personal devotions. It was in the hour of solitary prayer, hours of solitary prayer, that Jesus in his earth life received wisdom and power. Let the youth follow his example in finding at dawn and twilight a quiet season for communion with their Father in heaven. And in our schools or our home schools for that matter, the lights should be put out at half past nine. Now, by the way, these are, this is in the context of, of boarding situations. So those are older sc- kids. If you know, I don't want like the six-year-old kid in here to go, mom, look, I can stay up till 9.30. Okay. So no, no, this is, this is age dependent, but uh, certainly with older, you know, did you know that seniors in high school actually need nine and, nine and a quarter hours of, of sleep per night? And, and so, you know, if, you're, if your homeschool schedule or your boarding school schedule, if you're trying to do the schools of the prophets thing here, we got to get enough sleep here and get them up early enough so that they can have that, those hours of solitary prayer. If we don't have a personal devotional life, if we're not taking care of our health, we have to go way back to just 101 Christianity, making that time for personal devotions. And then the Bible doesn't get put away after devotions. Let the student keep his Bible always with him. The Bible is the central curriculum after all. Listen to this. God's word must be made the groundwork and subject matter of education. Used as a a textbook in our schools, it will be found far more effective than any other book. Amen? The Bible contains all the principles that men need in order to be fitted either for this life or for the life to come. Did you hear that? All the principles you'd ever need to be fitted for this life are found in the Bible. Isn't that beautiful? That's beautiful. As a means of intellectual training, the Bible is more effective than any other book or all other books combined. So given that, I would say of the academic book time, half of that ought to be the Bible, right? If all the other books combined don't measure up to the Bible, then it's at least half of the time. Amen? Amen. The book of Revelation in connection with the book of Daniel especially demands study. So there's a mandate. We're to study the prophecies in our home schools and our home-like schools. Children are to be instructed in the special truths of the, for this time and in practical missionary work. It should, be wor- it should be the work of every teacher to make prominent those truths that have called us out to stand as a peculiar people before the world. We shouldn't be trying to reduce and hide from and mute those doctrines and peculiarities that set us apart. We should be magnifying those to the world because that's the truths, the present truths that they need to learn. They have many of the others already. So let's, let's put that stuff front and center. And by the way, here's your barometer of success with the Bible in your children or your students. Don't give a quiz or a test to assess this. Here's how you figure it out. When a real love for the Bible is awakened and the student begins to realize how vast is the field and how precious its treasure, he will desire to seize upon every opportunity to acquaint himself with God's word. Its study will be restricted to no special time or place. 
That's your assessment right there. Have I developed in my children a love of the Word of God? Are they finding times to read it and wanting to read it? Now, what about the rest of the academic curriculum? We could start here. There's constant danger that those who labor in our schools will entertain the idea that they must get in line with the world and study the things the world studies. There must be earnest, careful, persevering efforts to break away from the customs, maxims, and associations of the world. Never from cowardice or worldly policy let the word of God be placed in the background. Let us determine that we will not be tied by so much as a thread to the educational policies of those who do not discern the voice of God and who will not hearken to his commandments. So also this one, we are not to follow the routine of worldly schools. I was speaking with a new friend of mine. He was interviewing uh, for a principal position. And he said, I want to ask you guys a question as a school. Normally the interviewed person gets the questions, but he said, he said, I'm going to ask you a question. Show me your schedule. Show me your daily schedule. Because if I can see what happens during the day, I can see where your values are and where your priorities are powerful insight into how we run our home schools or our home-like schools, if there are any. Well, the Bible should hold the first place in the education of children and youth. The book of nature is next in importance. So here's the rest of the curriculum. The book of nature is next as important as the Bible, second to the Bible. The great teacher, Jesus, brought his hearers in contact with nature that they might listen to the voice which speaks in all created things. And as their hearts became tender and their minds receptive, he helped them to interpret the spiritual teaching of the scenes upon which their eyes rested. Watch this. So we should teach. How was it? Take the children into nature that they might listen to the voice that speaks in all created things and then show them and interpret with them what these things mean. Beautiful, beautiful thing. I have a friend, another friend who, uh, he's a fellow teacher, educational philosopher, and he went to a, a conference, a teacher's convention, professional development of some kind, and they gave him an assignment. All the teachers were to get a piece of paper out and, and leave the room and then come back with 10 things on their paper, 10 reasons to justify outdoor education. And they were going to have a discussion to try and say, hey, yeah, we should do a little bit of outdoor education. Come up with 10 reasons why. Well, he was a divergent thinker, my friend. He thought outside the box. So he came back with one thing written on his paper. Everybody looked around at each other's papers, and they're looking at his, like, what? You only could come up with one? He's, everybody shares their 10. And he goes, well, I didn't come up with 10 reasons to justify outdoor education. I just wrote down one question. And my question is, can you give me 10 reasons to justify indoor education? <laughs> I love that story. <laughs> the Lord would have the grounds about the school dedicated to him as his own what? The schoolroom. The schoolroom. Children should not be long confined within doors. Here, little children have to spend, can you imagine this? They, have to, they used to have to spend from three to five hours a day in a classroom. But forgive me for the facetiousness, but as a teacher of 11 years, I can, I can give you what, what, what I think I'm hearing from Spirit of Prophecy and from my own experience, that I think the classroom is one of the most overrated, overused, overtaxed situations in our culture today. There's a place for study. There's a place for a classroom. I don't want to deny that at all. There's a place for, for sitting down rigorously, intellectually digging into treatises of, 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 of great things and the Bible and history. But at some point, we have to ask ourselves, what is too much here? Is the, is the first book of the Bible and the second book of nature taking the place that they ought to? Which brings us to manual training. Useful occupation was appointed to Adam and Eve as a blessing to strengthen the body, to expand the mind, and to develop the character. Did you hear those three things? Strengthen the body, 
expand the mind, and develop the character. I was watching a video on education a little while back, and an educational official uh, made a statement, and he said, you know, back in the history of Adventist education, we used to have the students learning manual trades because, you know, that was how you made a living back then. But today we live in the information age. I'm paraphrasing here, something like this. And, and, and uh, skills and, and trades and economic uh, advancement is found in, in computers and in things like this. So they had the kids working on computers. And I had the thought that, that, that really misses the point of why God has asked us to do manual labor. It wasn't merely for the economic factors of finding a job, doing a trade. It was for strengthening the body, expanding the mind, and developing the character. Did you see that in the quote? Health should be sufficient, a sufficient inducement alone. Health should be a sufficient inducement to lead them to unite physical with mental labor. Even if it were certain that one would never need to resort to manual labor for support, still he should be taught to work. Isn't that an important quote? Every student should devote a portion of each day to active labor. Now, how big of a portion each day? Is it really that important? Come on. Education means books. Education means classrooms. It means schoolwork. It means blackboards and math problems and reading assignments. How important is this element of education? Watch this. Every faculty may be safely exercised if the mental and physical powers are, what's that word? Equally taxed. Wow. As I've read through these councils, it's almost as if she was beating her head against the wall on this one. She says it over and over and over, and it didn't get through our heads very quickly because we have our own ideas, don't we? If the youth can have but a one-sided education, which is of the greater consequence? A knowledge of the sciences with all the disadvantages to health and life or a knowledge of labor for practical life? We unhesitatingly answer the latter. If one must be neglected, let it be the study of books. That rocked my educational philosophical world as a teacher of 11 years who was trained in education philosophy before I became Adventist. This really, I needed to make some adjustments in my thinking when I read that. But we need to have six hours of classes and two hours of homework every day in order to compete academically. That's what my teaching brain says. That's what my past echoing into my present says. Not so, Scott. Not so. In following this plan, the students will be able to accomplish more mental labor in a given time than they could by study alone. It's kind of like Sabbath. I have to work a lot. I have to work all seven days so I can get a lot done. Did you know that they found that people get more done in six days because their productivity increases than if they work all seven and they end up sluggish and slow? Same thing here. You actually become more productive and get more done. Physical inaction lessens not only mental but moral power. Just by the way, as an anecdotal point, I have a good friend who spent less than three hours, an hour to three hours uh, in, in education and in, in, in schooling, in, in, in academic schooling as a kid. And I asked him, what was your ACT score and how many hours was it? Can you just tell me how many hours it was, by the way? Was it one or three? Two. Okay, about two. So this friend of mine happens to be in the audience and he just helped me out. So <laughs> he's, he spent two hours a day on average on academics. I spent eight, right? And I'm going, yeah, there's no way he scored ACT score as high as I did, you know. Uh, he outperformed me by five points on the ACT, okay. And it's not just some innate inborn genius. He paired mental and physical. He did the, the blueprint, okay, and that actually made him smarter. And you know what also makes you smarter? Bible study. Amen. And I didn't do any of that as a kid. So I got a 26 on my ACT. He got a 31. And so, now I don't really care about an ACT score actually that much because standardized test scores don't translate to any 
real success in life, but it is a barometer of your ability to answer problems and answer test questions, which we're, do, we're, we're gearing our whole education system in America towards standardized tests in a way that is getting us to perform worse on standardized tests. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, he's not an isolated case, he says. He knows a lot of people in this exact same situation, my good friend Joshua. By the way, go to Joshua's website, athinkinggeneration.org. Powerful ministry, important message that the brother has. No line of manual training is of more value than what? Agriculture. Some do not appreciate the value of agricultural work. These should not plan for our schools. In the past, their influence has been a hindrance. Which brings us to health education, a hugely important part of the curriculum. But you know what? I have to skip it. I have to skip a lot. I apologize. But I promise you that in a few short months, our ministry, Belt of Truth Ministries, will be putting out a full seminar on education. And so just stay tuned. Get your name on that, on that clipboard. If you didn't get the clipboard, come up to my booth later tonight and get your name on that, and, and you'll get a you'll get an um, update on when that's coming out. So this is a summary of things, some of which I didn't get to the quotes of, but I asked the question. So with all these things, music, language skills, manual training, building, felling trees, canvassing, medical missionary work, various other forms of missionary work, agriculture, practical health education, cooking, training for home duties, voice culture, keeping the, keeping the books and practical mathematics, business, redemptive history, Bible, Bible, and more Bible. How in the world do we have time for all this? Well... The youth generally have too many hours of study. Now, I, that was true back then. If anybody is a good history buff, I've been asking around, how many hours on average did they study back then? I want to know that. But certainly, it applies today as well, doesn't it? Students and teachers realizing that they are preparing for the higher school in the courts above will put away many things that are now thought to be necessary and will magnify and follow the methods of Christ. By the way, how do you know if you have too many hours of study? One way to know is, am I equalizing the mental and the manual? Am I equalizing the book learning with the physical? And if the book learning is outpacing that like three to one or something, then I know I've got it out of balance. We must turn away from a thousand topics that invite attention. There are matters that consume time and arouse inquiry but end in nothing. The highest interests demand the close attention and energy that are too often given to comparatively insignificant things. Now, this is where it gets amazing. This is why I had to skip the health education and the felling trees and all of that and some of the agriculture quotes because this, is, this blew my mind. Watch this. In the training of his disciples, the Savior followed the system of education established at the beginning, which we talked about, right? Eden-style, home-style school education. The 12 first, first chosen formed the, why don't you guess what, what she calls it, formed the what of Jesus? The family of Jesus. They were with him in the house, at the table, in the closet, in the field. They accompanied him on his journeys, shared his trials and hardships, and as much as in them was entered into his work. Sometimes he taught them as they sat together on the mountainside, sometimes beside the sea, or from the fishermen's boat, sometimes as they walked by the way. Now you know, understand my comment earlier about sitting at the kitchen table and doing the same thing you would at a desk. This is family-style, true Eden-style school right there. And I'm not saying sitting down and doing a worksheet or reading a book is, is evil, but we have to be balancing these things out. Look at how much time Jesus spent just doing life with these guys, going here, going there, learning lessons from everyday experiences. To every nation under heaven was the God. Oh, man, this is so amazing. To every nation under heaven was the gospel carried in a single generation. Why? Because of how he trained these guys. Now watch this. The presence of the same guide, capital G, Jesus, in educational work today will produce the same results as of old. 
This is the end to which true education tends. This is the work that God designs it to accomplish. Success in any line demands a definite aim. Such an aim is set before the youth of today. The heaven-appointed purpose of giving the gospel to the world in this generation is the noblest that it can appeal to any human being. Many of a lad today growing up in, in, as Daniel did in his Judean home, studying God's word and his works and learning lessons of faith, faithful service will yet stand in legislative assemblies, in halls of justice or in royal courts as a witness for the king of kings. Millions upon millions have never so much as heard of God or heard of his love revealed in Christ. And it rests with us who have received the knowledge with our children to whom we may impart it to answer their cry. Our world is a scene of misery that we dare not allow even our thoughts to dwell upon. Did we realize it as it is, the burden would be too terrible, yet God feels it all. Can you imagine that? In order to destroy sin and its results, he gave his best beloved. And he has put it in our power through cooperation with him to bring the scene of misery to an end. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature is Christ's command to all great or small, learned or ignorant, old or young, with our children, right? The command is given. In view of this command, can we educate our sons and daughters for a life of respectable conventionality? A life professedly Christian but lacking his self-sacrifice? A life on which the verdict of him who is truth must be, I know you not. Thousands are doing this. Wow. Are you doing this? Are we doing this? In your life, young people, in your families, parents, are you doing this? Educating your children for respectable conventionality. Yes, we're well-behaved, nice, well-mannered people. Or are we answering the gospel call with our children? Because you just heard that Jesus, using a certain type of educational method with his students, produced a group of 12 that brought the gospel to the world in one generation. And it says the presence of that same guide will do the same thing. The gospel to the world in a generation in our time. Many of which I believe will be children, as we got from at the beginning of the seminar, Adventist Home 489. The children will go forth and do by the Spirit of God, doing a work and proclaiming the gospel that at that time cannot well be done by the older members of the church because their way will be hedged up. You read all in the, in the, in the quotes I skipped that we're training our children to be canvassers, to do medical missionary work. Did you know that's the three things that go till the close of probation? Medical missionary work, canvassing, and the children. And we're training our children to do both of those two things. Beautiful, beautiful picture of the last days. It gets me excited. Parents, make every effort in your power to place your children in the most favorable situation for forming the character that God wants them to form. That is not respectable conventionality. If our home schools or our schools are producing respectable conventionality, then the most urgent plea and call for reform needs to come home. And if that school that you're thinking about sending your child to is not setting their sights and aims on that blueprint and reforming and moving toward that blueprint, then you have to ask yourself a question as a parent. Am I willing to let God reform me so that I can do the work that needs to be done in my home, Garden of Eden style, as Jesus was educated at the knee of his mother? Those, by the way, who are not directly connected with the school, don't, don't turn your back on our schools and the children in there. These are children who need the Lord 
they can help to make it a blessing by giving it their hearty support. I have a friend of mine who's like the most ardent, hardcore homeschool dad I've ever met. Um, he's very intense about it. But you know what? He is more supportive of the children in his local church school than anybody I know. That's the kind of thing we need to do as the people of God, getting back to the Garden of Eden plan and helping our schools get back to the schools of the prophet plan. And in the meantime, just loving on those kids that are in that situation that may not be ideal. But also, the aspiring homeschool mom needs help. Churches, church leaders, never will education accomplish all that it might, Christ's coming in this generation, until the importance of the parents' work is fully recognized and they receive a what? training for its sacred responsibilities. That's kind of what this seminar has been about. But I feel so incapable. We had like six short 50-minute sessions. And who am I? We need a whole army of people helping to train mothers and fathers, for that matter, to do this work in their homes, training their children. And even if they are sending their kids to school, they're homeschooling the rest of the day, right? And on the weekend, your home is a school, whether you are using the, the resource of a school or not. And so these parents must be trained to do Eden-style schooling in their homes. The church is asleep and does not realize the magnitude of this matter of educating the children and youth. God requires that the church arouse from her lethargy and see what is the manner of service demanded at this time of peril. The lambs of the flock must be fed. The Lord of heaven is looking on to see who is doing the work that he would have done for the children and youth. As a church, as individuals, if we would stand clear in the judgment, we must make more liberal efforts for the training of our young people. Concluding statement, final thought. We've been through a lot these six sessions. So parents, educators, parents who have children in homeschools or who don't. How about church members who care about the kids in your church? Here's your final thought. Every day we are making our history. Yesterday is beyond our amendment or control. Today only is ours. Though in the past we may have come, we have come short. We have come short of doing what we might have done for our children and youth. Let us now repent and redeem the time. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this incredible blueprint vision that you've given to us. And Lord, we've only just examined a couple aspects of it, but we do see the significance of it in light of prophecy. We do know that we are a part of an amazing time in human history where an army of youth is being raised up to give the final message of hope and warning to a dying world. May we never take our eyes off the cross. May we never cease to keep Jesus at the center of all of this. And Lord, as we think about our own children and how we want them to wear the victor's crown in heaven and lift it up before the onlooking universe and say that their mother is the one that did the most to bring them there. The quotation we heard yesterday, Lord, was so inspiring in that regard. And we want to be those parents. And those in the room who don't have children, we want to be those kind of people who can bring children into the kingdom and help train them as missionaries to do this last work. Father, we thank you for that, and we just pray for the strength of conviction, for the help and assistance to reach out to those who, who, who may be able to help us. Sometimes we feel helpless as parents, and we know that you are holding up our, everlasting, your, our arms with your everlasting arms. We thank you for that, Jesus. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 conference at the cross in phoenix arizona gyc a supporting ministry of the seventh-day adventist church seeks to inspire young people to be bible-based christ-centered and soul-winning christians to download or purchase other resources like this visit us online at www 
www.gycweb.org.